Welcome to The Science of Fiction. Uh, I'm Will Thompson, and today I'm joined by Andy Holding. Hello. And by Alexandra Cummins. Hello. Alex, tell us about yourself. Excellent. Yeah, so I'm in my final year of my PhD here at Cambridge. I'm in the Department of Veterinary Medicine with the Cambridge Infectious Disease Group there. And I study generally diseases that go from animals into people. These are called zoonoses. Um, I look particularly at fruit bats in West Africa and looking at how diseases that the fruit bats carry might get into people through how people interact with them. And this includes using them as food. I was, I was going to ask, why, why, why the bats? <laughs> Are bats tasty? Well, so there's two things about why bats. The first is, yes, that people interact with them. And pretty much in Africa, a lot of things get hunted. Fruit, these are fruit bats. So they're not insectivorous bats. They're much bigger than you guys think about bats here. Okay. Um, they've got a wingspan of, what we say, two, two meters, maybe? Wow. Um, they're big bats, yeah. And these are actually smaller fruit bats. The ones in Southeast Asia and Australia, like, huge. Because so, our bats are like this big, yeah, little tiny. Totally. <laughs> the, the, the great when when you see one fly, if you're like in your back garden having a drink, you'll see a bird fly by, and a bat's just completely different. Yeah, you, you can just tell why they fly like, very di- differently. Well, especially the insectivorous ones because they're flitting around trying to catch things. So if it looks like a drunk bird, it's probably actually a bat here. <laughs> the, my only bat fact I really know is that the echolocation. Some of them are FM and some of them are AM. <laughs> How they do the. Different modulation. Different ones, yeah. Well, and so I do have to point out that our fruit bats don't echolocate. Uh, Oh, some do. Which is right. So this is the annoying thing because that's a really good way to track them because you can actually identify bats by their call. Like you were saying, they all have different ones. Oh, so 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 if you want, so rather than having to tag them or anything, if they did echolocate, you could just um, record what the the frequency used by any given bat is, or or, or by a bat species. By bat species, yeah. And so there's actually a really cool app you can get for your iPhone that's called (laughs) iBat. And you can actually, if you have an external mic, you can hold it out and it will identify, it'll pick up and identify what bat species are going by. And they're using that to track bats in, in England. So, but, in, in case you find yourself surrounded by bats exactly. with an iPhone, of course. Well, th- th- as th- one does in Cambridge, we might have some in the back garden. We'll have to check. Yeah. Well, now, now you can. Now you know how. Yep. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so there's one this idea of how humans and bats interact. Um, and interestingly, in in Accra, which is the capital of Ghana, where I work, um, there's a huge colony of these fruit bats, the straw-colored fruit bat, that live literally lining the main street in the center of town. Um, so people are around them all the time. So not only do they hunt them, butcher them, eat them, but they live around them and work around them. So, so, so does this mean that, that well, that, that any diseases humans carry are transmitted to the bats or vice versa or, yeah. or both? So that's the thing. We live in an ecosystem. So things go both ways. They, we've got you know, this viral chatter basically coming back and forth between organisms and groups of organisms between ver- different vertebrate species, not just from certain species into us. But of course, we care the most about the ones that get into us. Right. Yeah, we don't like getting sick, basically. (laughs) Exactly. We get kind of touchy about that. But then the other interesting thing about bats is that per species, they actually carry the highest diversity of viruses, um, which, of course, are the most likely thing to be zoonotic right now, to be a a new emerging zoonoses. And these bats in particular carry some things. We found bats that have antibodies to Ebola, for example. Um, Only a few. There's other fruit bat species that seem to have much higher prevalences of antibodies to Ebola. But there's a number of things that they carry that we're concerned about. And we don't want. Exactly. Well, with that, I think we're heading to our first track chosen by Alex.
So that was uh, The Four Horsemen by Metallica. Why did you pick that? Well, one, I'm a Metallica fan, so I had to throw that one in. But two, this idea of disease being what's going to end us all isn't necessarily as far-fetched as it sounds. Um, The issue with pandemics is we live in this world where all sorts of new things are coming up. And, you know, we'll we'll talk later about some of the science and fiction that, that demonstrates this. So what's the difference between a pandemic and an epidemic? Good question. So pan means universal. So the idea that this is something that's going to spread across the globe. Epidemic is something that can be localized. So you might have an epidemic of Ebola, where you have a village that's infected and they have to deal with that. Hopefully we won't have a pandemic of Ebola. But things like um, SARS became a pandemic uh, because it spread across across the globe, across all of the continents. And then there's a huge debate exactly how many countries or how many continents a pandemic is. But yes. But for it, most of us, once it gets global. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, and then the other thing that I liked about um, the Metallica song is just pestilence in general, I think strikes a chord with us because we actually don't really know how, you know, how pestilence will be dressed when he shows up. We try to set up ways to predict viral emergence or new diseases that are going to show up but that's spotty at best so we really have to gear ourselves up for something that we might not be able to identify until it's already causing problems which is a pretty different message from um neil gaiman and um <laughs> and terry pratchett's good omens where they said that p- pestilence retired from the horsemen after uh, mm-hmm. after the invention of penicillin to re- replace with i think pollution yep um which so, so that's that, that's kind of premature then well i guess, so, I guess pen- penicillin can't, can't can't cure any of these viruses which exactly are suddenly, so. so there's several issues one is that back, yeah, antibiotics only work against bacteria so we've controlled bacterial infections but we haven't gotten very good at controlling viral infections that we don't have vaccines and against. i think it was oh going to try and remember a very important person to have health in the america at the time Stuart, so, yeah he said we've cured bacteria now we're going to do viruses and of course it looked, it did look that way, for, especially because he was a non-scientist. Yeah, and and really, in the Western world, you know, developed nations, however you want to call it, we've made a huge dent in infectious diseases. People forget in the states, for example, we used to have malaria and yellow fever across the south of the U.S. Well, apparently, Cambridge used to have malaria. So, yeah, so well, it, it stands to reason it's you know it's historically very swampy. Yeah, it was when they drained the fences how they got rid of it. Exactly, and same with well for the U.S. it was filling in the swamps and also using DDT. Yeah. Which, of course, then as soon as we got rid of the mosquitoes, we banned. And so mm. then now you're left not being able to kill out mosquitoes in places like Africa. But so on top of the fact that not only are we having to battle more than just bacteria, we also then have these new things showing up. And our weapons tend to be spare, fairly specific. Vaccines are to one pathogen. And so when you're trying to battle an army that you can't see until it shows up and is attacking you, it's hard to prepare weapons. But advance. we have still done well on that because, you know, polio... Uh, smallpox, which actually is eradicated. Yep. Diphtheria. Uh, mm-hmm. I didn't realise what diphtheria caused till I came across it the other day in an episode of House. And I was like, that's really horrible. It's a horrible yeah. disease. But th- this is true of so many diseases which, which we know the name of only because everyone's vaccinated against exactly, them in the West. We've never so, seen no, it. so no one ever sees it. Except that the UK is starting not to vaccinate very well and they're getting things showing up again. So The, the odd one is whooping cough, yeah. which is pertussis. Um, yes. That's starting to come up. And actually, when I was reading it, a lot of people blame that on low vaccination uptake. But actually, even with vaccination, it has a habit of still breaking out. So yeah. it's been used by the pro-vaccination lot to attack the anti-vaxxers. And actually, it's a really 
poor example because it's a complex one. Whereas something like measles was low vaccination. Exactly. Measles is clear cut. Now, the issue with pertussis is if you've got really high vaccine coverage, you're much less likely to have an outbreak, even though the the vaccine isn't 100% effective because you get this general herd immunity where you don't have a lot of susceptible people. So even if one person happens to, you know, have gotten the bad shot and not had a good vaccine coverage from it if everybody's vaccinated it ends there but if you've got a chance for it to start cycling around it's going to find more and more people who have not quite complete vaccine coverage so it it is involved in both so if everyone is vaccinated against it you don't have outbreaks but unfortunately the vaccine's not 100 percent effective and of course the anti-vax people who i don't agree with but they do have a point that vaccines aren't entirely safe and the if you are the unfortunate one the side effect of vaccine can be much much worse Mm -hmm. than the disease itself and I know in the US they have a scheme that all vaccine companies pay into a pot, Mm -hmm. where in the UK we just work on the fact that we have a national health service, which Mm -hmm. isn't necessarily the biggest thing Mm -hmm. for you when you then get a really debilitating immune deficiency from it. Right. Well, and this is where, yeah, again, you have to look at what the disease causes and the outcome of this but there's also to some extent a moral question about this you know so people are like i don't want to risk my kid but by not by not being willing to have your kid have a vaccine you are putting other people at risk as well because you're damaging that herd immunity and specifically i mean herd immunity is the only way to protect those who have damaged immune systems exactly. so you're putting the vulnerable at risk and this exactly. is why i'm very pro-vaccination because i think it is a moral mm-hmm. thing and i i think those people who are unfortunate to have side effects you've got to look at societal benefit. Um, mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean if you're the individual, that isn't very depressing. And it's a, and it's a very hard, hard argument to... Um, well, the argument of, you know, but look at what happened to this person is, is a very emotive one, quite exactly. hard, quite hard well, yeah. to counteract. Well, and this is you know, where we were talking about Ebola, that when you have something that is very striking and very scary, it's very easy to miscalculate, one, the probability of that actually happening, and two, the overall cost of that. So even if you have one person have a bad side effect from a vaccine, but you've covered 300 million people in your population, yeah, it sucks to be the one person, but actually weighing the cost and benefit, that's been a hugely successful undertaking. And with most vaccines, the chance of getting a side effect that's worse than the disease is very, very low. Like most of the side effects from vaccines are things like, oh, you get a rash or you feel sick for a couple of days. Like, or, or, or you have the same scar as everyone else on your upper arm. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I, and it is quite interesting because obviously I had to make the decision for my children. It was mm-hmm. never a question for me whether I get vaccinated. And we also had extra choices because it was swine flu at the time. And that was something that yes. pregnant mothers were being given. And we just were like, no, vaccines are good. Go for it. Right. Had one of my children been one of the unlucky ones. You would have, well, would have changed I, your I, mind. I, I probably wouldn't change my mind because I'm very informed and I believe in vaccination. Would I be so pro it and so easy to speak? No, it would be a much more hard and emotive thing mm-hmm. to do. And it's, I can understand why anyone who sees their children mm-hmm. suffer is not yeah. going to love it. And and there is a difference as well between vaccines that are very, very well studied, like the MMR one, where they've got literally millions of children in their records, where they've looked at rates of incidence of side effects. Um, and then also ones that are brand new, like there have been bad swine flu vaccines in the past. So there is some legitimacy to needing to make sure we're on top of it and making sure that there aren't these bad side effects that happen. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean just vaccines are bad on, on the whole. Just that you need to have the scientific process it. go into to make sure that you uh, get the bad ones out. So. so you got down with show notes. Contagion. 
Yes. The movie. Yes. Well, and this is what actually got me here in the studio in the first place. Um, because, well, and I have to do a spoiler alert because it's hard for me to talk about what's so neat about the movie Contagion without giving away the ending. Um, so one of the reasons that I love Contagion is actually that last scene with the fruit bats and the pigs. That That's sense. actually one of the viruses I study. Oh, so, 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 so it's... It's based on a real virus and a real outbreak that actually has happened. Wow. So that scenario is modeling um, Nipah virus, which is in Southeast Asia. And it first broke out in Malaysia in 1998 um, and was exactly the setup where there were these fruit bats that lived over an intensively farmed pig, uh, like a pig farmery. And um, the bats ate some fruit, fell into the pigsty, viruses in the saliva on the fruit the pigs eat the fruit the pigs get sick they give it to the butchers the people who handle the pigs and then you have this outbreak that the initial outbreak infected 300 people and killed over 150 of them and um all down to a clumsy bat yes several clumsy bats um and since then there's been these recurring outbreaks of it um in bangladesh that actually go a slightly different route but it's still coming out of the fruit bats in Malaysia, there was no evidence of person-to-person transmission. So it was only people who got it from the pigs. Huh. In Bangladesh, there's starting to be evidence that it is passed person-to-person. So basically, Contagion said, what happens if this goes from very limited human-to-human transition transmission to something that's as, as infectious as, say, a flu? And actually, what they demonstrate in Contagion isn't too far-fetched. I mean, and that, and that premise itself is not too far-fetched. That, not at that, all. That, that, that a virus would adapt to be more... No. It's happened hundreds and hundreds of times and some of our most virulent pathogens we have now that are human only pathogens started out as coming out of animals and entering into the human population and then adapting to to the human population so this this is happening all the time and and the thing is is that these aren't rare events viruses spill over constantly and so you have all of these different opportunities and all it takes is one of them to hit the right combination and then the right combination at the right time and then it's exactly I, i don't want to go out anymore (laughs) <laughs> oh, I'm going to lock myself in. <laughs> well, then you'll have an earthquake or something like that. Yeah. We're all going to die somewhere. In Cambridgeshire, we're safe from earthquakes. Generally, <laughs> I, but I say that I have actually had an earthquake whilst in Cambridgeshire. See, there you yeah, go. Um, that was a long. That was a few years ago, and it was like one on the Richter scale. But still, but still, the house shook a bit. More than zero. More than zero. I don't know what it was. It was, and the only reason I felt it was I was on the third floor of a building. Because obviously, you have to be higher up to feel right, it. To and uh, I was like, ooh, that's a bit wobbly. <laughs> For a lorry driven by, though, and <laughs> later found out that's, it was an earthquake. That's the classic. Confusing lorries and earthquakes. I hear the drums echoing tonight And she hears only whispers of some quiet conversation
dogs cry out in the night as they grow restless, longing for some solitary company. I know that I must do what's right, sure as Kilimanjaro rises like Olympus above the Serengeti. I seek to cure what's deep inside, frightened of this thing that I've become. So that was Africa by Toto. I mean, it seems like an possibly an obvious question, but why did you pick that? Yes, as I said, it was sort of a cheap shot because it's easy for me. A lot of my work is in Africa. Um, but also I think bringing up Africa and talking about diseases is important because oftentimes there's the dark continent syndrome where people are like, oh my God, all these awful things are all going to come out of you know the deep dark jungles of Africa. Um, this, is, this, this is basically a... a, a it's the same as the here be dragons markings on maps. Exactly. To be fair, if someone says Africa to me, I forget it has jung- jungles. I'm one of those British people. It's just like <laughs> desert or savannah. It's all desert. It's all savannah. <laughs> I know otherwise, there are but it's, I, I just forget. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so while it is true that if you look at some of the hot spots of disease emergence, places like Ghana are red on the map. Um, so there are some interesting things with Africa, but these aren't the only places that diseases are emerging. Whether you look at SARS coming out of Southeast Asia, um, but also actually antibiotic resistance, which is one of the leading sources of emerging diseases, is it's a right UK here. American phenomenon, really, um, from our uses of, of antibiotics. So while places like the heart of darkness in Africa play a role in disease emergence. They're not the only ones. But I guess one. Of, I guess one of the differences is that um, people's uh, pe- pe- uh, every, real everyday people's um, understanding of medicine and so on is very different. And and, it, and there's there are probably problems of people coming in from outside and saying, "Here are some things you must change." In 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 Africa. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Probably, probably more so than here. Although I guess we were talking about we were talking about the vaccines earlier. Well, 
Right. And so this is the, this is a leading debate in how you manage diseases as well, is that there is a very dominant culture of Western medicine, of this idea that we have drugs, we have vaccines, this is how we manage it. And, you know, we'll, we'll talk into this with outbreak. Um, but that's not necessarily the best management technique. And we think it's the only way to deal with it. And so this is also something where there is very much an overriding thing of we must come in and educate the poor, ignorant locals and have them if we teach them how to do this and they'll be able to take care of themselves and stop everything. But they've had to live with these diseases in many cases, much longer than Western worlds has to deal right. with them. And so they've got many very useful management techniques. And vaccines and drugs all cost money, exactly. which they might not have. Exactly. So you bring in this model of like, oh, this works great when you have a national healthcare system. Sort of look at you like you're crazy. It's like, what, you're going to hop on the bike and cycle out to the middle of nowhere with your little box of you know, whatever. Because that's, I mean, that's what they've had to do for smallpox. Like to eradicate smallpox, the effort that had to go in to actually get those vaccines, all the places they need to go, was absolutely heroic. So one thing I've always found slightly interesting is why was smallpox the one we eradicated? Why why not one of the other diseases? Why is that? Is it just that that was particularly easy to track down? So there are several things. One, it's a very distinctive disease. They're, like chickenpox and smallpox are the only things that cause really those symptoms and they have distinct patterns of rashes. So you actually can look at someone and know instantly if they have chickenpox or smallpox. Two, it doesn't, it's a very low mutating virus, so it didn't mutate around the, the vaccine. So it's very easy. Once we got it, it was stuck. It has no animal reservoir. So once we got it out of people, there was nowhere else for it to go. Um, not, not even our friends, the bats. Not even our friends, the bats. Or even our closest relatives in, in terms of chimpanzees or gorillas or anything like that. But it, there was really so no So we else. didn't have to do an animal vaccination right. as well, which right. is the problem with rabies, of course. Oh, yeah. We, we, which UK obviously has mostly eradicated. Yes. Those bats again. <laughs> I know, see? Why bats? Oh, but isn't the US currently on a program to try and get rid of rabies within the States? Or are they still just ongoing? I don't, I mean, I haven't heard anything that they're on a program to try to get rid of rabies because the problem is, is it infects every terrestrial mammal. So, because what I heard is when we get a case, the idea is they were doing it by immunizing right. on the hotspots rather than systemic immunization, yes. which is just not possible. So, so the, the issue with the hotspots, that worked really well for smallpox. In terms of rabies, because it can transmit across so many things, great, so you're going to catch every animal in an area and vaccinate it? I'm not sure how well that's going to work. So it, so now... It's hard enough to catch the badgers. Exactly. And so vaccinating your dogs and your cats works really well because it does give you a buffer between how most people interact with wildlife. Yeah, because most of us so, go up and stroke a dog. We don't go up exactly. and stroke up whatever alligator is in the right. Florida. But yeah. alligators probably can't get rabies anyway. No, it's, anyway. it's mammals, yeah. <laughs> details, details. Terrestrial mammals. Um, so yeah, so rabies is a very hard thing to pin down. Um, and actually bats might play an important role because they seem to be able to be infected by a certain lists of viruses and not become rabid, which is unheard of in mammal mammal world. So, But, oh, cool. but, but, but do they still carry it? Yeah, well, so that's what I'm saying. So they right. can be infected, right, but just, pass it, potentially but, pass it right. on, but not die from it. Um, they can also go rabid um, and die just like any other mammal. Um, but we don't really understand the infection dynamics of rabies and similar viruses in bats at all. So the other sort of big infection movie was Outbreak, yes. which you're not so fan of. <laughs> but, um, so, and that is all about this idea that there had been a previous outbreak and then this new outbreak happened. And was it Dustin Hoffman? It was some... There is Dustin Hoffman uh, is yeah. in the movie. Yes. Um, there's like, this, we're going to uncover what happened last time. And apparently the US military just 
firebomb the entire place and that's how they dealt with it, which is a wonderful conspiracy theory over dramatic story. Um, but that's basically a false Ebola outbreak because it's, yeah. it's more. So it spreads further than you'd expect Ebola yes. to because people die too fast of Ebola. Yeah. So there's a couple of things. One, I loved that in, in the movie, their picture of the virus literally is the Ebola virus mirror imaged. Um, <laughs> so they were really creative with that one. I love um, how they actually went to the effort of mirror imaging it because not many people right? recognize it. <laughs> right. They're stealing Ebola. Well, a few of us did. <laughs> but anyway. Um, yeah. So one of the, there's, there's several scientific issues with the way that outbreak goes down that I think Contagion did much better. One of is this idea that they get the vaccine and they give it to everyone and everyone gets better. Because so, everyone knows that if someone's on death's door and you give them a vaccine, then it kills them because their immune system suddenly knows what it's doing. Right, but unfortunately it doesn't really work that way. Yeah. Um, right, exactly. And that was sort of their their take on it is, oh, we boost their immune system and fall out. But if you're already in the middle of a hemorrhagic fever, one, your, liquid, your organs have already turned into liquid. And two... Your immune, there's nothing left of your immune system well, to boost. The whole way doing immunization works, you preempt it and you tell it this is exactly. how you fight it. When you see it, don't let it in the door. So, so all you're giving of an immunization is you're going, this is what you're going to fight. And you're going, no, I'm, yeah, all, I'm already yeah, onto that. I know that I got that And actually exactly. all you're probably going to do is make the person worse because the immune system is going to fight. The, that's why you get... the immu- vaccine and now the virus. And, and, and that's why you get a temperature when you get vaccinated. It's you can, yes. Yeah. Um, so. That's why kids get cowpaw. Yeah. So. so, so you say that you know the well, the, the well, the Ebola uh, kills too fast to spread that far. Well, but if you remember, in, I think in outbreak, it's the monkey gets on the plane, or they they mm. they smuggle the monkey. He doesn't get on the plane himself. They smuggle the monkey into the U.S. and and the monkey's the one who's actually helping spread it as well. But and the the person, one of the people handling it, gets sick and is able to to. Live long enough long to move enough to it from it different things. So yeah, so that's one issue is that you know Ebola kills very quickly, so it doesn't move very far because you get symptoms within a couple of days and you can be dead within a week. Um, and so that that was one issue they were looking at different hemorrhagic fevers. But one of the other reasons that I really I did want to talk about outbreak um, is that these sort of very extreme control measures that we see in the movie the firebombing is a little bit outside of the this but when you see how they've quarantined this village well the city in the u.s and you've got the military there and they're they're trying to coordinate everyone and keep everyone from going and there's this big clash over it um that actually is how we control ebola in africa and i say we because there are foreign teams made up of who people cdc from the states and they go into whatever poor village in gabon and isolate it so just just Build, build a barricade around it mm-hmm. and have armed guards stopping yeah. anyone getting in and out. Yeah. And it, I guess the tension here is that it seems like a very, it seems like a, a pretty, there's a, there's a lot, a loss of uh, freedom, obviously. Incredibly um, so. Particularly if it's... And not even by necessarily your, the local government. Right. This isn't being run by your own, you know, people you voted into office. This is being put down onto you by foreign people. And the idea is this cost benefit of, oh, so we're going to, you know, restrict the freedoms of a few people in this one area to protect the globe against the scourge that is Ebola. You know, but we were talking about earlier that actually not that many people have died of Ebola. It's one of those things that scares the out of people because well, it's it looks a horrible awful. Way to die. It's an awful way to die. Um, but all things told, it hasn't actually cause as much damage as people really think it has um there are other fevers there are other hemorrhagic fevers like lassa fever which okay only has about a 30 percent death rate out of it but it infects over 100 100 000 people every year 
and or more. And so then you actually say, okay, well, actually every year more people die of Lyssa virus than have ever died of Ebola combined in any outbreak. But we don't care as much about Lyssa virus, or I'm sorry, about Lassa fever because it doesn't look quite as dramatic as Ebola. You, more people survive it. Right. So it's not so, so, that so, so, like, so, so, oh, so, everyone's going to die issue. So, you know, the, the, these people are all infected. They will all die. It will be gruesome. It's right. a much stronger message than, well, yeah. you know, some people will die some maybe. Some people will die. So when the CDC and the WHO goes into these places, how do the governments actually let them? I mean, are the local governments fairly willing or is it bullying or is it they don't have no choice? It depends on the country. Sometimes okay. it's sort of, well, you're part of the WHO, so you have no choice. You have to listen to the edicts of the WHO. Okay, so that's part of how the WHO works. Then. Right. And, and so, um, you know, it depends on where it is and how this is. But like there are places, you know, in Gabon, for example, there was um, local armed resistance to these wow. people coming in because they're like, look, we've seen what you did in the past with managing these Ebola outbreaks. We want nothing to do with it. And of course, there are people who are then stuck with sick people who, and they think themselves are healthy, or in fact, may exactly. be healthy. Cause... Exactly, exactly. So there, there, and I'm not saying that you don't necessarily need these sort of draconian measures, but they're not always gone around in the most, per, you know. It, it does sound a bit like painting a red cross on the door and <laughs> locking people in there. You know, <laughs> yeah, which, um, wasn't the most popular thing in London when it happened. Exactly. But I, I remember reading about. Um, some prion diseases which were spread by um, the ritual cannibalism of people who died of them. Kuru. Um, Kuru. Yeah. Okay. Um, which I, I guess the, the problem there is trying to convince people that their well, tradition how, is the, 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 endangering the, them. And it isn't, it isn't that um, you're, you're coming in and saying your tradition is wrong for because reasons, which probably a lot of people have told them before, mm-hmm. saying this is, this is actually killing you and yeah. here is why. But we managed to do the same thing with Scrapey and men's CJD, VCJD. Yeah. You know, it's, it's kind of hypocritical to go in and, you know... We, your, your methods are causing people to die when the reason that we ended up with mad cow disease is because we grind up dead sick animals and feed them back to the cows. So it was our practices that were making people sick too. And it was incredible because Scrapey was known. It, it, yeah. it wasn't like, okay, it was a new disease. It, the CJD was unexpected, but... It's not unprecedented. It wasn't. Right. <laughs> and generally... I mean, you, there's debate whether this is right or wrong, and I'm not in the right field to really comment, but the idea of feeding any animal back to itself generally seems like a bad idea to me because you're just keeping the infection cycle going. Yeah, someone should have said maybe this isn't a good idea. Yeah, and, and so that's the issue. Again, we sort of like to think that we've got it all sorted out, but we don't maybe necessarily. And even in areas where maybe someone is doing something that is endangering them, one is the difference between empowering with knowledge and trying to forcefully change. Um, because we do lots of things that put ourselves at risk as well. Every day. Um, uh, yeah. So one is to just make sure people are aware of the consequences within the context of what their culture will be acceptable for them to hear. So if you walk in and you're like, oh, you've got proteins that are chewing holes in your brain, might not really make any sense to them. But if you explain it in, in a way that fits in with their cultural norms, then that might be something that they can then use and make their own empowered decisions out of. All my bags are packed, I'm ready to go. I'm standing here outside your door. I hate to wake you up to say goodbye. But the dawn is breaking, it's early morn. Taxi's waiting, he's blowing his horn. Already I'm so lonesome I could cry So kiss me and smile for me Tell me that you'll wait for me Hold me 
There's so many times I've let you down So many times I've played around I tell you now they don't mean a thing Every place I go I think of you Every song I sing I sing for you When I come back I'll wear your wedding ring So kiss me and smile for me Tell me that you'll wait for me Hold me like you'll never let me go I'm leaving on a jet plane I don't know when I'll be back again Oh babe, I hate to go Now the time has come to leave you One more time, let me kiss you Then close your eyes I'll be on my way Dream about the days to come When I won't have to leave alone About the time I won't have to say Kiss me and smile for me Tell me that you'll wait for me That was Leaving on a Jet Plane by Peter, Paul and Mary. Uh, do they also do Puff and Magic Dragon? <laughs> they do. <laughs> yes. Oh, classy, classy. I know. Um, so the reason you presumably picked that is for the fact that the world being interconnected by flight now has massively shrunk the world in terms of infection rates. Incredibly so. Yeah. And so, and this is the one thing that you know, we we're talking about Ebola killing people too fast. But really, if somebody were infected the day they were leaving, hopped on a plane, they might feel a bit ill they might not show, show symptoms until they get off at Heathrow. And you know how many thousands of people they've come into contact to before they die three days later. It's actually is, a, there is that conceivable danger. Um, and with things that are less deadly than Ebola, this is definitely how things get passed everywhere. And I, I, I kind of hate to admit to having read this, but there's a terrible novel by Tom Clancy in which um, there are terrorists, of course, and they're trying to spread Ebola. Uh, and they it gets loose accidentally in exactly this way they, mm. they're using a plane in the course of their nefarious deeds and then they don't clean it out properly and someone happens to get on the plane and then suddenly there's an outbreak way sooner than they planned those terrorists who don't clean out their planes I know, it's- <laughs> I know. <laughs> they just pick up after themselves they should just blow the things up right. sterilize it but uh, yes, and I mean, even in the UK, you have workers at Heathrow come down with malaria because there's some mosquito that got on a plane. And, um, and all the uh, anti-animal import laws in the world can't stop a mosquito getting in. No, no, well, and, we, we and, 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 and they can't stop the, bat, the bats getting in the Channel Tunnel. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a, that's what I remember is on the open Channel Tunnel, they were generally worried about animals going Using down the channel. To, yep. Except bats can just fly. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, this is so okay. This is my American bias. It cracks me up that England thinks it's so far away from everything. Like, the channel's not that big, guys. <laughs> Vote. Interesting uh, fact I found out when recently someone <coughs> did it again. Less people have swum the English Channel than have climbed Everest. 
massive because the channel is such it's a lot harder to swim the channel than it is to climb Everest I guess you can stop if you're climbing Everest yeah, yeah. and you don't drown um, yeah. also if you look at the routes they, people take you can't go straight across the channel because yeah. the tides are so extreme you right. do this ridiculous zigzag going much faster than going forward right. now I will agree the channel's hard for people to cross <laughs> swimming but, but, but bats in, can fly in terms of a bat I mean so I don't know how far the you know little Pippa's trails in England can fly um, but our bats in Ghana they fly 40k in a night to go get a snack and hmm. then when they migrate they can migrate up to 2,000 kilometers so like these are organisms that can, can yeah cover and some I mean ground. and clearly birds okay not going to carry rabies but they Other can things, fly avian flu <laughs> yes that, that wonderful thing exactly so now England is not safe because of the channel I'm sorry well, we like to think so though. I know. go and live in the Outer Hebrides <laughs> that's nothing's going to go there it's too cold and wet mm. I, have, I have relatives in Orkney in the Outer Hebrides? No, a little bit, a little bit less. That's the Inner Hebrides, isn't it? Yeah. It's not actually. We, 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 we can look at a map later. <laughs> I, I can't remember. Is Orkney the other side? It's up the top. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do know. I just assumed you weren't misleading me. No. Um, lovely place. Never been. Well, but, 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 but there was another... Um, well, it's, it's a film more about time travel than about... Um, disease but um the the conceit in 12 monkeys is that a horribly infectious disease has has killed off most of the world and and the survivors in the future are in hiding um and they send bruce willis back in time to go and figure out figure out what's going on um in fact it's surprisingly similar to looper including starring bruce willis but um he um, it comes to pass that he ha- he's remembered what in what order what apparently random order the outbreak happened, and it turns out to have been someone's uh, travel itinerary. Because of course the only the, the simplest way to start um, this out this outbreak in apparently unconnected locations is just to get on a bunch of very fast flights mm. between them and basically infect people. Right, you don't and you don't even have, you don't even have to be infected yourself if you yeah. uh, you if you were malicious you you really could just just mm-hmm. carry a. We'll carry a bat, I guess. Well, <laughs> all sorts you, of you just need to have something which will uh, make into an aerosol if it's yes. in air delivery. So if, right. So if you want to weaponize, I mean, so there was some work in the USSR looking at how to weaponize smallpox in terms of oh. making an aerosolized version of it. So yeah, I mean, bioterrorism is actually a huge issue from the point of view of disease. Well, botulism is the other one, isn't it? Because botulinum toxin is so toxic. Yeah. Um, but, but actually, even I don't know if you can weaponize the toxin itself, but certainly there's fears that you can weaponize the, the bacteria, bacteria that makes yeah. it. And I mean, so there, there is a big step to have something that, oh, you need to consume and food to making it aerosolized. So this isn't an easy process in terms right. of that. So this hopefully is something that we will be able to deal with, but it's something that you have to consider. As, and, as and people can still get their Botox facelifts as well. <laughs> Using the world's most toxic biological compound. Biochemical compound, I think. But I don't know. It's got a record it claims to have. I know. But it, it's, it's funny how the... How well the, the 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 margins for these things are either much smaller or much bigger than you, they're much more likely or much less likely than you than you think in a lot of cases. Like, um, yeah, mod, mod, modifying a disease. Well, it's possible, but it's quite a long. Well, shot. someone tried. Yeah. There was a state study, and there was a big debate where it should be done of trying to modify the swine flu and, and looking at virulence factors. Yeah, and trying yeah. to change and because the the naming the number letter number letter mm-hmm. sort of system. Uh, sorry, the other way around, but um, that is basically what proteins make up the outer shell so all it is 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 an instruction of how the virus is made and then if you switch them around you can make any of the other ones Mm -hmm. and the answer was well can we engineer more deadly viruses some people said this is a bad idea some people said it was a good idea to see how quickly it would happen 
the paper got published and in the end they decided it was better that people knew that there was right. it was quite controversial it was yeah and i mean it is something to consider but to be perfectly honest most of the information that scientists are coming up with how to do something is out there to some extent you know yeah. or they're finding easier ways like especially if you need a really high-tech lab to be able to figure out all of these different things maybe that's not as big of an, a concern for for terrorism but it is an issue especially when a pig can do it just right. by sitting in a field exactly that's the other issue <laughs> well yeah i actually discovered that um because pigs are very efficient ways to turn i mean they, they, they eat meat right but they even even if you only have um vegetable leftovers they're a very efficient way of turning scraps you don't want to eat into bacon <laughs> um but um if you if you if you keep a pig as a pet which is not advisable, but you can. You're not. You're not legally allowed to feed it your kitchen leftovers, uh, for fear that even though we have all these protections on importing you know, infected meat and getting into the into the food chain, because meat is imported from places which have different different vaccination programs or controls than we have, then if some happen to get through, and then you happen to feed it to your pet pig, then your pet pig happens to get foot and mouth, and then you happen to take it for a walk in Cotton's Common, and then suddenly we're back at five years ago. The interesting thing is, is that most of the foot and mouth outbreaks in the UK caused by the place that makes the vaccine. Because well, the vaccine the, needs the live right. virus to be made. Yeah. And then there's always this debate. The, so I don't know exactly what the story is. There are different conspiracy theories out there that it's from like spilled waste from the, the old Cat 4 labs that used to be here. There are many different ways. But I mean, here's the thing. Foot and mouth is endemic in many areas in sub-Saharan Africa. So all it would take would be somebody tramping around a farm there. Come here, tramp around a farm here, and voila, you have it reintroduced. And despite the immigration form saying, have you been on a farm right, recently? Exactly. It's a tick box. It's exactly. Not... And... Oh, there's a second tick box. Have you lied? Okay. <laughs> this yes. is like the US one. Are you a terrorist? I know. that's all... Or have you participated in genocide? <laughs> so... That's the other scary one. You're like... I wonder if anyone's ever ticked that. I know. Genuinely, rather than yeah. as a laugh and realise that the immigration don't have a sense of humour. Yeah, I, no, I don't no, think no. that'd be funny for very long. No. Uh, I've never found immigration to have a sense of humour. Oh, no. Especially Amer- US immigration is terrifying, even to Americans. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> they call me Dr. Good morning, how are you? I'm Dr. Worm. I'm interested in things. I'm not a real doctor, but I am a real worm. I am an actual worm. I live like a worm. I like to play the drums. I think I'm getting good, but I can handle criticism. I'll show you what 
Good morning, how are you? I'm Dr. Worm. I'm interested in things. I'm not a real doctor, but I am a real worm. I that was of course Dr. Worm by the Amari Giants. Why Dr. Worm? <laughs> well so I am a month from submitting my PhD thesis and so. And you found time to come to a radio station? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Might not have been the best timing on my part but um, and so this whole idea of becoming a doctor again I really liked but I also I'm always struck by the line in it of the I'm not a real doctor but I am a real worm and I think for me you know, there's the line of someone who's an engineering PhD and his, his mom's picking on him. It's like, yeah, he's a doctor, but not, not the kind that helps people. <laughs> and, and when you are, you know, if I'm Dr. Kamen's, like, I'm not a medical doctor. But I think actually people who do research in this area have a chance to maybe even do more than an individual doctor who's going to care for a certain number of people might be able to do. Because if you can understand a system, you might be able to improve that system and pre- either prevent things from spilling over or understand what you need to do to be able to, to manage that when it does happen. Um, and that's really why I do what I do. Um, th- I guess it's kind of, it's kind of comes back to the question of, um, of, vaccinating to pr- to protect the collective possibly at the expense of individuals because if if, if you're if you're a um helping people doctor quote unquote mm-hmm. then it's it's a much more immediate um it's the little problem versus the big picture and but you know you mustn't forget about the people in the street when mm-hmm. doing the big re- i mean this is what i like about my research is uh i started out as a chemist and i've ended up in biology and i mean there's a lot of chemistry in biology so it's not I've had to change my field much, but it's that relevancy. It's that fact that I know, you know, I, I might collaborate with someone on trying to work on a protein transport system that's involved in a cancer. And then you mm-hmm. go, that's really interesting because this research may be one little bit in understanding how this cancer forms. Yes. Whereas synthesizing a molecule, which is already found in nature, okay, you learn new bits of chemistry, you are discovering more about how molecules work. But we actually are never going to use that method for making that drug because you can just go and get it from a tree. Mm-hmm. And I, I just found that that's almost uh, climbing a mountain type exercise. And there's, to do it because it's there. Yeah. And, I think, and to understand, better understand the mountain, but still the mountain's there. Yeah. <laughs> so. And uh, I, I have nothing, there's no problem with that sort of research. I mean, it's, that's exactly why we have the LHC, which we were actually discussing only the other week on this show. It, 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 there's no obvious reason for building the LHC and trying to find a Higgs boson, but it has, it will, I'm sure, will come out with some really good results. I mean, it's come out with medical imaging results because the way they sort of do the algorithms they develop for the detectors I mean they can now do better X-rays and better CT scans. So, you, so it is worth it, but I like to be just that little bit more yeah. direct with it. And then, and then, of course, you've got that person who's sitting in the GP. And they're actually handing out with Medicare, actually diagnosing. And yeah. of course, that's a completely different type of help it again. Is. Yeah. And, and that's why I said it's not 
it's not to degrade anything it's just for me that remembering that I can still do something that's going to make a difference for people um even without being the kind of doctor that helps people <laughs> and, and it's really good if you're not a people person yeah, that's true <laughs> no we don't, we don't not everyone should be a doctor <laughs> that is true um, but I mean you I mean the difference to me is my PhD was sat in a lab day and day out you've gone to other countries and done massive treks and I mean, yeah. that just sounds amazing. I'm really um, jealous. It is. I've I've absolutely loved it. And that's the one of the things that I've um you know that is is really interesting to realize how much of with diseases this work has to be done on the ground. There's only so much that you can do in a lab. You can say, "Oh, this virus looks like this," or when we infect a monkey, it does this, but you have to know what's going on in these places. Whether it's um a farm in northern England and you're trying to figure out how they're farming practices might affect the spread of foot and mouth or whether you're in a rural village in Ghana talking with people about their bushmeat practices and how hunting wild animals might put them at risk. And I guess it helps you to find what the find out which problems are the ones you actually need to solve. Yes. If, if, if no one's eating bats, then, exactly. then, then there's no but problem. But you won't know until you go and check it out. Right. Well, so, it, so it's just reminded me, John Snow, who did the cholera outbreak in London, yeah, famously uh, yes. mapped it out. I mean, yes. that's a great example. Of uh, he worked out where people were getting cholera, worked out which pump it was, and yes. isolated. And of course, that problem of clean drinking water and cholera is still around today. It you is. Know, if we can teach these people it's a problem, or yeah. you know, get them clean drinking water, whether it's still well, massive so that, and, we that, and this is the other thing to point out is that again, it goes back to the well. It's one thing for you to be like, well, drink clean water. And they're like, I don't have clean water. And so knowing what's going on in areas can really help. And also adjusting the systems of how we care for people. So one of the things that's really helped with cholera outbreaks is just giving out kits of um, rehydration salts. Yep, which is dirt cheap. Exactly. And so looking at finding solutions that work in the areas that you're going to and respecting what's going on in those areas and saying, what can... I do or you do or the, uh, us together do that's going to actually make a difference right here. I mean, you've got to give credit to these people. And some, I mean, it's not true for all of Africa, but there are places where people will walk massive distances to get dirty water, come back, and that's the beginning of the day. And then they'll do work with a family, mm-hmm. and then finally they'll be allowed to go to school. Mm-hmm. And you go that, they aren't, it's not like they're not trying to live. Mm-hmm. They're, they're living with an absolute passion. Mm-hmm. But life is really hard. And it's very easy to see and go, oh, if we raise some money for charity and give them some water pumps, right. it will be better. And of course, right. we've been doing it for a long time and it yeah. hasn't got better. And I think the other thing to remember too is that not all of Africa is this dirt poor right. place. Like there, you've got incredible cities that are bustling centers of their own innovation. And that's, I think, the part that we're also missing is that integration of saying, all right, we all have to manage all these different pieces. How do we use all of our different strengths, all of our different understandings and get something that actually is going to work? Because we we're talking about what a pandemic is. Diseases don't care about borders. We have to figure out how to manage this as a group. So it's not even an us and them issue. It's an us issue. Yeah, actually, the thing you mentioned about our misunderstanding of what Africa's like is uh, a journalist, I can't remember, I think he did it in The Guardian called Martin Robbins. He recently went to Africa and uh, he basically was showing the fiction that comes out of it. It's sort of like, here's a small kid. Look, it doesn't have flies crawling over it because it's a happy kid. Yeah. And, you know, there's a very... There is a, a sad practice of charities just trying to show the awful pictures over and over it again is. to milk us for money. And that isn't because their cause isn't worthy, but it's because if you show, well, these people are okay. Yeah, exactly. Know, it's not it quite as compelling. So did you meet anyone when you're out there? Any any things that particularly memorable about your time in Africa? Well, there's a number of people. There's So going back to, again, meeting people that keep you motivated, um, we started a project to raise grass cutter, which are essentially really large guinea pigs. Well, 
rats they're rats they're rats <laughs> try not to say rats because people get all upset when they're like they eat rats but they really are large rats um and uh but you can farm them and so the idea is if people farmed them and raised them for meat because they're a delicacy they actually taste really nice i will vouch for that <laughs> um <laughs> but uh so we started this this farm for people to be able to grow them themselves rather than having to hunt them in the wild and so it gives you a little bit more control one from a conservation point of view and two then they're not hunting bats which might have more worse diseases than these huh. grass cutters um and there was uh, the son of the guy that I worked with named Bismarck. And we filled the whole cage. And I show up the next day and he's painted a picture of the, the cages that we've built. And he's labeled it Sandra's Grass Cutter Farm. <laughs> so my name there is Sandra because the X sound is not in their language. So right. yeah, Alex caused a few, few issues. Um, and so that was when I sort of realized that actually, wait, I'm not just puttering around in a lab. Like, I'm working with real people, having an impact on them, hopefully for good, but not necessarily. And I think that that sometimes is also something that people are like, oh, I'll waltz off to Africa and do some research. And they forget that they're interacting with people who are just as real as they are. These aren't subjects. These are people who have complete lives that you've walked into. But then also, on the other hand, I realized that this is something I want to try because I'd like to do whatever little bit I can to help Bismarck grow up. And I thought it was hilarious because he wanted to be an airline pilot. And so, which, which, which is particularly ironic, given what we're exactly, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah. So he's going to be well. Hopefully, if he comes from an area that stays healthy, then he will be a healthy airline pilot rather than shuttling around infected people. So it does all come full circle, right? So hopefully, he'll be one flying good planes and not infected planes. Okay, well, I think we're going to have to wrap it up there. As always, you can sort of catch up with the past episodes on the podcast, which is on our website, sciencefiction.co.uk. And uh, next week we will be back in the studio that's the idea see you then thanks for thanks for joining us thank you so much for having me thank you